This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. We're here with Mike Bernard and I'm Zach Shahan for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. In this episode of Clean Tech Talk, Mike is going to talk about a proposal he pitched to Elon Musk through Clean Technica. We're not sure if Elon saw it. He's he sees obviously a lot of our stuff. He likes and retweets and responds to a lot. I think we have the record for the most one-word responses from Elon, and we just got another one last night where he just responded true, uh, sometimes seriously or ugh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we have the most one-word responses, but uh, but he it's also a very busy guy. You might have heard, and um, I don't think he actually is on twitter much uh, especially lately so i think he sort of happens to see what he happens to see and you never know what it is unless he responds uh and uh but this gives us another opportunity to raise this proposal to the forefront in case um he missed it the first time uh mike what is your what is your pitch to elon musk uh take tesla energy and the boring company which have the skills necessary to do closed loop pump storage hydro, and build a lot. Um, it's very complementary to the lithium-ion battery. The power pack is excellent for in-day and up to 12-hour you know, storage. Pump storage hydro is good for next day up to seven days quite easily. Um, it's very complementary product offerings for Tesla Energy, and it gives uh, an excellent fleshing out of the Tesla Energy product set. So that's the headline. That's the elevator pitch. So so let's talk about this because this is really interesting. It, um, there's that word again. I re- I'm interested in it. Um, <laughs> is it fine? It's fine word. I notice the words I repeat a lot. I don't notice the words other people repeat a lot generally. Like I didn't notice it until you called it out. <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> but I, I think that's a that's a sim- that's a wait, basic enough word. It's not doesn't stand out. Uh, and you know, I'll let you dive in now. But I, I'm also curious. You know the so much of what he does is like sort of preparation for Mars. So this is actually quite an interesting, you know, has potential, potentially uh, beyond beyond Earth, you know, if you want to go there. Wow. I'm just thinking that the tallest mountain in the solar system is on Mars and that doing a uh, dry gully pumped hydro with water in a closed loop sealed environment would provide enormous opportunities for head even with the light martian gravity there we go elon you've got to build it on earth so that you can replicate it on mars i have Uh, to admit that i'm a little shocked and very impressed that you could just rattle that off your (laughs) right from i mean i I didn't even hear the middle part because i was just shocked that you knew the tallest mountain in in the galaxy was on Mars, like what? Oh, no solar system, not galaxy. Solar system. Solar, solar sorry, system. sorry. Solar. I don't know why I said galaxy. To be honest, I was thinking solar system. I don't know why, uh, but yeah, that's. I mean, honestly, uh, where did you, <laughs> where did you learn that? <laughs> Doesn't everybody know that? I mean, I'm sure Elon does, <laughs> but I'm no, sure I, Elon does. I've never even considered uh, mountains beyond Earth. <laughs> well, I. I Forget what it was. It might have been The Martian. It might have been some one of the other hundreds of science fiction books I read over the past couple of decades. But uh, yeah, I knew that one. Anyway, um, back to it though. Um, the reason I started looking at the pumped hydro stuff again in more depth was partly because I've been wondering why none of the candidates are looking at it, and more on that later. But also because of the machine learning. Um, you know, breadth and deep dive around clean tech that I'm doing uh, with you on clean technica these days, you know, building up to the report on machine learning plus clean tech, just as a year ago, we published the blockchain plus clean tech report based on the series I'd done. 
Um, and, you know, and blockchain and machine learning are both in my bailiwick because of my big technology and innovative computer technology space. I, I you know, worked with artificial intelligence proposals in healthcare and other, other domains for years. So what I wanted to do was look at the recent study out of Australia about pump storage hydro in more depth, in part because I was just interested in the pump storage hydro, but also because I was wondering if it actually used the machine learning component. Now, I, I did the um, deep dive on the coastal dam study recently, which found that um, on average globally, coastal regions between one meter and 10 and 20 meters, I think, yeah, one and 20 meters, were under were overestimated in terms of elevation by 1.9 meters. Um, and that was a simple mechanism because in North America, we have the uh, NASA uh, SRTM radar data from 2000 or so that was released and available globally now. Um, we also have LIDAR of all the coastline, um, especially the urban areas, so that we know the accurate stuff versus what SRTM says. And SRTM, this you know, using machine learning, we can compare the LIDAR to the SRTM data sets and train a machine learning neural net to figure out what the actual elevation is because the SRTM stuff reads the tops of buildings and the tops of dense foliage as the elevation of the land, which is a problem. You know, globally, what the machine learning data set, um, machine learning study found was that on average globally per the results, global elevation on coastlines near the water is overestimated by 1.9 meters. Um, that's a lot. Uh, as we look at a meter of sea level rise, 1.9 meters of overestimation suddenly puts a lot more places at risk than we knew before. Um, and and we, we are not at risk in North America because we have the LIDAR data and we know the elevations, but um, they're moving the entirety of um, Jakarta. You know, Indonesia is moving their capital city and their, ten, you know, I think it's 10 or 20 million people to a different island because Jakarta's sinking. <laughs> it's not only got the subsidence problem um, because they're sucking the fresh water out, but because it's sinking. And this is replicated across many of the developing nations' uh, coastal infrastructure. And so this new data set is very interesting. So where this ties in, into, I was curious to see if the Australians had used machine learning to do the assessment of pump storage hydro sites. You know, I'll, I'll talk about the pump storage hydro pieces. The study found, uh, the results of the study were that for closed loop pump storage hydro, there's a hundred more times more require, more resource potential than is required for all of our storage needs a hundred times more than we need. It's um, uh, 20, what is it? Two terawatt hours of storage per million people, I think is what the um, assessment out of Australia says. And we've got a hundred times more than that. Um, in North America, it's in the United States, I think it's 250 times the amount of pump storage resource with this technology then we require for all of our grid storage needs. Um, so this is a really interesting and relevant thing from a policy perspective and from the perspective of um, what's going on, entrepreneurialism and things like that. So, so let's talk about closed loop pump storage hydro a bit. Um, most people, when they think of pump storage, they think of putting a dam on the river and then pumping water from down below to up top and then letting it come down again. Um, closed loop says, let's not put it on a river. Let's not block a stream. Let's not create that significant environmental impact. Further, for pump storage hydro, um, for closed loop, what you do is you maximize the head. Um, head in hydroelectric terms is the distance between the intake and the output valve, um, you know, the output of the pipe in terms of meters of elevation. Meters of elevation is important because every extra meter gives you a bit more potential energy in the water resource. Water is fairly dense, about a third as dense as rock. Um, but if you, the higher you make the head, the more energy you can get from letting the water fall 
down. So the study said, we're going to look at only places that have a minimum of 300 meters, about 1,000 feet of head. Um, and we're going to look around the world. Now, what the head does with that is it allows you to have much smaller reservoirs. So, you know, I'll take an example I happen to know off the top of my head. The Site C Dam in British Columbia, which is finally under construction after being initially proposed, I think it was 1981 or something like that. Um, and it was controversial and it was, you know, significant in the provincial election here as one of the points of contention. Um, the Site C Dam is going to have a reservoir that covers 93 square kilometers. That's 9,300 uh, hectares. That's about 37 square miles. It's bigger than Manhattan. It's about two thirds the size of San Francisco. It's a big reservoir and it's on a river. It's on the Peace River in northeastern British Columbia near the Alberta border. Now that reservoir is going to cover traditional hunting grounds, it's going to cover agriculture, it's going to cover some infrastructure, it's going to cover a bunch of trees, um, most of which are going to get removed so that you don't see anaerobic uh, decomposition from the reservoir that emits too much CO2. You know, that said, the reservoir is going to be emitting CO2 for 37 years. Um, so that's disrupting, um, it's also going to block the downstream flow of water. So there's going to be a less silt and nutrients flowing downstream. It's putting a dam on a river it has huge environmental impacts, both from a CO2 emissions from the anaerobic decomposition to changing the upstream 93 square kilometer space to the downstream um, ecosystem. So that's part of the reason they're hard to, hard to get through approval processes. But pumped storage hydro with really high heads, I mean, the, the head at Site C is about 100 meters, about a third of the minimum head from the Australian study. 300 meters means you can have a lot smaller reservoirs. Um, one example for a gigawatt hour capacity pumped storage hydro facility, it's about 100 hectares. That's about a tenth of a square kilometer. Uh, there's a thousand hectares in a square kilometer, and a hundred hectares is less than that. So this this has two um, hundred hectare reservoirs, one three hundred meters um, or four hundred meters above the other. So they're pretty small. They're kind of ponds. They're smaller than Central Park in New York. You know, they're smaller than the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. They're not big reservoirs. They have about a gigaliter, gigaliter, which is a billion liters of water uh, in the system. And that, of course, would allow um, allow for some good uh, Elon framing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Giga, <laughs> a giga, uh, what, what, what would he name it? A, I don't know. Gigapump, uh, giga storage. Yeah. Gigapack. Yeah, anyway. Gigapond. Gigapond. Gigapuddle. So the, the gigaliters of water that are in the system provide a gigawatt hour of storage. So that's like 200 megawatt hours equivalent to a gas peaker plant for five hours capacity, but only with ponds that are smaller than Central Park, two of them. So, and no rivers get blocked with closed loop pump storage hydro. So you don't have to worry about that. You've got small reservoirs and you've got no downstream impacts uh, on flowing water. So that, that substantially reduces the environmental impacts. Um, it substantially reduces any buried vegetation and anaerobic decomposition, composition, which creates CO2 and methane. Um, so both of those are very good things. They mean that it should be possible to locate pump storage hydro easily. And, and once again, and based on the criteria, 100 times more than we need globally. Yeah, those, those two things, you, you said them quickly and they're, they're quite nuanced. But basically, they that that's dissipates pr pretty much all of the 
controversy and, and opposition to, to, to hydro and dams. So like basically the, the um, no, no downstream effect and no um, emissions from the vegetation matter you just mentioned decomposition. So it's basically you, you have sort of a perfect system. <laughs> you have something that nobody should really oppose. Oh, and wait, please. <laughs> I haven't got to the end of the story yet. Oh, my. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'd think that this would be um, a, a fairly obvious thing. Um, so one of the questions is why in the United States are there only three pump storage hydro facilities in planning? Three. Uh, because uh, the perfect of th- perfect. Per- the perfection of threes what is that called everything should be in threes is that why i don't know (laughs) um well i'm I'm digging at this and you know anybody who's listening who has more insights than i've gained so far please let me know um but i you know one of the so i'll continue down this and i'll talk a bit more about some of the barriers that need to be overcome because that's important and it gets back to the politics again so pump storage hydro real quickly before we move forward where are these three uh, uh where are they I haven't geographic geolocated them yet, but they're okay. mostly Western. So okay, okay, but, um, but they're definitely following the rule of threes somewhere in the country. Yeah. So the next part of the proposal for Elon is use coal workers, and this is the same proposal I've been putting to candidates. Um, you know, every time I look at a coal workers um, re, you know, the ability for them to transition into a new role, I I, I look at people who are defined by themselves, by their community, uh, often by generations, their family, as miners, people who work rock. And they're being asked, in many cases, to build solar farms or wind farms. Uh, Further, they're being asked to build those solar or wind farms typically a long way from where they live, a long way from their communities, a long way from their family and their friends. There are lots of jobs in wind and solar, but it's not really the way they think of themselves. So the definition, the way that coal miners think of themselves is they think of themselves as miners. They work rock. Um, That's a societal definition. That's a community definition. Often it's, you know, there's multiple generations of miners. And solar and wind farm construction aren't adjacent or in their mythology. But building pump storage hydro is aligned with coal mining. It's directly in energy, which is good. and it's working rock. It's building reservoirs, it's building dams, it's digging reservoirs out, it's building tunnels. These are aligned and symmetrical, and they're, I think, easier probably for coal miners to um, divert to. Um, and a, there's a case study that I'm gonna tell you about in just a second where this is an interesting point. The second thing about the coal miners is they're in hilly country in the east and west. Mountaintop removal requires mountains with tops to remove. Uh, And that's true in the eastern and western coal regions. They're steeper than, they're not prairies. And so the coal miners are where most of the pump storage hydro is. Uh, Most of the locations are. Now, it's probably worth just a diversion into the three types of pump storage hydro. There's the first one I talked about, which is on stream. And then there's two types of this closed loops type. The first is called the dry gully type, and the second is called the turkey's nest type. (sighs) I didn't make these names up, but they make sense when you start to look at them. The dry gully type, you go and look up in the hills, and you look for a feature that looks like it could have a stream running down the middle of it, you know, a a valley or a gully or something that's easily dammed at the front end, um, but it doesn't have a stream. So you basically have a, an easy-to-create high reservoir with two of the walls of the triangle, um, the pyramid made by existing uh, rock. And you just add the, you know, the front rock to create a, a, a lake where there wasn't a lake. Um, that's the dry gully model. And obviously in hilly terrain, that's pretty good. Now, the other model is the turkey's nest. Now, turkeys is called that because turkeys nest on the ground. They build a nest and they build up the walls. And that's exactly what you do with the turkey's nest model. It doesn't work on the prairies. It works on terrain where there's, you know, plateau or something and a lower plateau. But basically what you're doing is looking for the 300 meters of head minimum and then looking for a place where you can build a reservoir 
by digging down into the ground and taking the earth out and creating a wall around a dam around the reservoir. And then you're looking for another location, um, potentially kilometers away, but 300 meters lower in elevation, where you can do the same thing, create another turkey's nest reservoir. And, uh, the dams in uh, the walls for turkey's nest, you know, once again, they put more parameters on this, uh, a maximum of 20 meters for turkey's nest and a maximum, I think, of uh, 50 or 60 meters for dry gulling. So that, you know, in a feet perspective for the U.S. audience, that's a 60-foot earthen dam um, in Utah, away from the mountains, um, or in the Rockies or Adirondacks where a dry gully one is used, maybe a 100-foot dam. Uh, for comparison, the Oroville Dam is 750 feet. So by modern dam building perspectives, these are pretty reasonable size dams. And once again, the reservoir is really small by comparison. So they're not using nearly as much concrete and earth and rock to create the dams. You know, a gigaliter dam uh, bursting, for example, it makes a mess, but it doesn't destroy downstream villages and towns. So the risk statement for construction is lower as well. So that's the dry gully and the turkey's nest. But back to that point, these best sites per the map that's available from the Australian National University uh, that maintains a you know clickable, um, attributable geographical information system uh, based on Bing for some reason, um, where you can actually say, you know, what size of storage do you want for how many hours? And then it'll attribute the globe with all the sites. In the article that you know I, I wrote for Clean Technica about this, I pulled this out for all the pump storage that's available in the United States. And basically the entire Rockies are a swarm of dots pretty much out to the coast and into the, uh, into the foothills in the interior. And then on the east side, there's this huge swath down through coal country through Appalachia, where you know all the coal miners are currently looking for their next job. So that's the next piece. We've got tremendous number of resources, We've got low environmental impacts, and we've got coal miners where they could be put to work doing really good stuff that's very much aligned with the skills they have and their generational perspective on themselves. But then it's there's funny. the next one. Well, sorry, funny. go ahead. We, we had, I don't know if you, uh, one of our earliest uh, Clean Tech Talk podcasts was with Nancy Fund, who is an early uh, venture capital investor in Tesla. And um, she, she, she noted that they, one of the important factors for them is, you know, they, they target companies that you basically would have likely to have a positive Im impact on the economy and job creation, uh, these types of matters. Um, so it's, it's funny because, you know, you have you know, Tesla's a great manufacturing success story in the auto industry in the United States at a time when it's like, you know, there's so much talk about the, the lost manufacturing industry, the, the, the declining auto industry. And now you've got actually, uh, he just announced the Gigafactory 4 in near Berlin. And it's a similar, similarly interesting situation where you have the German economy is so heavily based on the auto industry like some some studies have heard is like one out of three or one out of four people are at least indirectly connected to, the, to an auto auto job an auto industry uh, and so you have this this dramatic threat they're facing from electrification if they don't move quickly enough and they just uh, made a deal to basically build a giant gigafactory create a lot of jobs uh, in this, in the heart of Germany, in Germany, in Berlin, uh, and it's it seems to be sort of a, a kind of component of Elon's companies that um, I don't think gets a lot of attention. But it, you know, the, there's this strong kind of job creation and, and you know manufacturing component that's uh, uh, yeah, that's quite important. And um, I, I love that you have this proposal and, and tie it to the coal, coal miners, this region that's extremely important politically and, and also just, you know, the, these are lives, these are whole communities that are um, uh, struggling or will be struggling more and more. So it's, it's a great 
you know, another great, you know, case. it just seems like a perfect match for, for like Elon and what he does. And, and, uh, of course the tie in earlier to, to Mars is also fun, but, uh, uh, I thought it was a brilliant proposal when you, when you mentioned it and wrote, wrote about it, but, uh, I'll let you keep going. I just thought that was an interesting, it's an interesting th- thing to, to consider when you think about him and his ventures and, and this proposal. Well, it's interesting you say that because at one level, you're right. At another level, he, he automates stuff so that I, I haven't seen the statistics. Yeah. But my assumption is that his labor hours per vehicle is lower than the vast majority of the auto industry. I mean, they've done their work on well, automation, but well, it's, not as it, much. It's interesting because they, they really wanted to heavily autom- automate and then they ended up finding they went way too far with that and they had to bring back a lot more manual work. And, and now they have kind of a balance in the factories, uh, like depending on the line. But I think they have, I don't know, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of talk about it without any clear, I haven't seen any clear data or evidence. So I'm not really sure. You know, some people assume that they're far ahead on automation. I assume they would be ahead, but uh but we haven't really seen data comparing Tesla factories to other uh, other advanced uh, auto factories. So, so it's it's an interesting topic. I'm, but I do expect, even if they aren't quite ahead right now, that they're headed in that in that direction from what we've heard. And, well, and it would be be fairly easy to find the proxies because you know we could adjust for the store um, staff because those are not in. Um, those are not in GM or Ford's uh, place. Those are dealer resources, not uh, GM um, resources. We could then get down to the on a, a proxy for the manufacturing staff, compare it to you know the annual output of Tesla versus the annual output for GM versus Ford versus probably we could get close on Toyota and Honda as well in these and just do an interesting comparison to see, you know, coarsely. No, not a perfect thing. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll write that article soon, just yes, to find out. It's a good, that's a good project. Hypothesis. <laughs> it's a good project for you. It'd be very popular. We can also, in in that process, uh, ask Tesla if they have data on this. Um, yeah, they might. They might. They might uh, they, I would assume they do. I don't. Know. They might share. They might not. But yeah, and outside of the automation of fluff packing, which they ended up having to de-automate, they actually did a pretty good job. So I mean, the maps of the gig the the. Vid- videos of the Gigafactory don't have a lot of human beings compared to the number of robot arms wandering around the place. Yeah, and there's, there's also this, uh, this, it's, you know, when we interviewed Jerome, president of, auto, of automobiles in March, um, he's sort of, I would say, you know, sort of number two at the company. Uh, and uh, he talked openly about a lot of stuff. Then he got to this topic of this giant machine they're building. And he was like, uh, I probably shouldn't say anything more about that right now. And and, there, and this was the, I think this was the most interesting aspect of the interview too. These uh, really hardcore Tesla enthusiasts that follow like you know every detail you can learn about the company, and uh, and there's been more developments since then. So there's what I've gathered from people who have delved into it is they're about they're they're developing a kind of giant machine <laughs> that uh, I I think will be involved in the in some some aspect of battery production but but i think it's going to be quite heavily automated and and definitely i I think they they're always find you know often looking for and finding ways to 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 automate where they can so i assume they're they're quite ahead if not very ahead but uh, anyway back to the back to your 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 story (laughs) i will pull one more thread on the automation though so human hands um, there's there's two things going on there. Mich- humans have this amazing neural net in our brains. So this gooey mass of neurons, lots of them, and it's very flat. And we can do stuff that machine learning can't easily right now. I mean, we can do stuff that machine learning still has tremendous difficulty doing. And for us, it's trivial. Um, we can see stuff that's just obvious to us because we've evolved this massive neural net and related sensors for 400 million years. Uh, similarly, our hands are incredibly dexterous. Now, I don't know if you, you know, I, I know I, I write too much. My, my sister pretends that she reads everything I, I write, but I don't actually believe her. <laughs> um, so I, 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 awesome. I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire on this. I know you haven't even read all the political stuff I've written, but the um, one of the 
machine learning um, articles I wrote was about OpenAI's success in having two neural nets manipulate a fully featured human hand, robotic, to one-handedly solve the Rubik's Cube. So that one-handed solving the Rubik's Cube, the, the solution to a Rubik's Cube is just algorithmic. That's the trivial part. That part is just, here's the, it's, it's in this demand, it's in this order. So do these manipulations and you're done. Speed cubing is down like under five seconds now. That's trivial and it's memorization. It's like chess. Manipulating the human hand and the digits to do a one-handed solve with a complex three-dimensional rotating object is go. That's where the neural nets come in. Now, packing fluff in the automation line on Tesla's cars is go, not chess, which is why he had to turn to humans and our clever monkey hands and our clever monkey brains to solve that complex problem. But he helped found OpenAI. He's, I believe, divorced himself from, from it now due to, um, you know, uh, concerns that I don't remember exactly the reason, but I believe he's. Yeah, I, re- I recall him saying that he they had did well. I don't I, I don't recall the topic, but I re- recall just him saying that they had uh, some differences of opinion on where to go with it, and he's busy enough. He was busy enough with other other things. Fair, um, but the point there is that OpenAI, another company that Elon Musk has founded, is now capable of designing a robotic hand which can pack fluff and an assembly line whereas before the state of the art for robotics wasn't there so automation continues apace around and, the and you definitely universe. you definitely see him uh tweeting and, and liking a lot of a lot of things in this field so he's he's obviously uh, still heavily involved in watching this and and i'm sure tesla if not tesla and spacex uh, are involved in things to some degree yeah, sadly, he didn't get on board with uh, building plastic dinosaur, my you know robotic neural net driven velociraptor. I, I tweeted to him, say, "Hey, Elon, you want to build a a, a neural net driven robotic we keep, velociraptor?" We keep tweeting. Keep the tweets going. <laughs> you have to give me the one to retweet when this, uh, once in a while here. Um, okay, so back to pump storage hydro. You know, moving away from uh, automation for a moment. Once again, um, if Elon hadn't done the boring company, I wouldn't be recommending pump storage hydro to them. It's like coal workers and solar. It's a tough fit. Uh, A battery car company that does solar panels is a tough fit for drilling rock. But because Elon got bored with traffic um, jams out of his uh, California factory and decided to start the boring company, which I, I, sorry, Elon, if you do end up listening to this, I did think it was a joke for the longest time. And now it's close to a billion dollars market capitalization, which is going to make you, what, how many unicorns is that? Three, five? Uh, what do you call a unicorn with three horns? Uh, um, Elon, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't um, know. But now he's got in family of company deep expertise with geotectonics, with drilling, with tunnel boring machines, um, which... You know, and he's drilling long distance tunnels. So this is a really interesting overlap. And he's got an energy storage company, which is selling grid storage for duck curve management in South Australia and California, um, which is an excellent use case for that. And it's around very high value electricity times. You know, you can labor arbitrage very cheap electricity because there's just too much of it and then provide it back at peak demand um, you know, six hours later, you know, so that's a nice use case. And that's why they're actually making a lot of money, both those battery installations, but it's not really all that great for longer duration storage. It's still going to be expensive and the cost curves are still going to be a lot more expensive than pump storage hydro, closed loop pump storage hydro. Um, you know, when you, when you get up to gigawatt hour scale of, uh, Tesla batteries versus pump storage hydro, you know, it's, still a couple of order, you know, an order of magnitude or two more expensive for Tesla batteries. Um, And so there's room for both. Um, They're complementary solutions. Pump storage hydro, boring company plus Tesla energy product and and delivery, does next day and seven day storage. Tesla power, uh, power pack does same day and 12 hour storage. 
And that's a nice complementary overlapping mix. There is a, there is a tweak here that I'm, I'm getting to though, which is the boring company does 4.3 meter finished tubes. And the studies indicate, um, best study I, I managed to find indicated that eight to 10 meter tubes are appropriate. You know, so that's, you know, uh, 14 feet versus 30 to 35 feet wide concrete tubes, smaller tunnels, bigger tunnels. You know, one of the things Elon was, you know, doing around this was he was trying to build hyperloop size tunnels and build individual car size tunnels. And that's where they are. And it's easier to do that if you can get away with it. I'm still not seeing the use case out of very specific niches of weird traffic values. And I still prefer, you know, uh, subway tunnels. And I've been in a lot of subway tunnels globally to, for the vol the, the, the volume of passengers you can put through a specific, you know, area at a specific time. But that said, they've been invent, they've been, Working on their tunnel boring machines, there's a couple of major vendors of them. Uh, Tesla bought one, but now they've been working to improve them to make them work faster and more efficiently. And so those improvements on a 4.3 meter finished tunnel things could be applied to a larger tunnel boring machine, more suitable for pumped hydro. And once again, it's in the domain of what they do. So coal workers, Tesla energy, storage products, the boring company, drilling tunnels, that seems like a nice trifecta. So, you know, there's the tweak about the diameter size. So why aren't more people just doing this is one of the questions I keep asking myself. You know, when I, when I did the assessment of all the leading um, candidates, climate change plans, and I've done, what is it? I've, I've done, we'll, we'll get to Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg in a minute, um, in a few minutes, but I've done Warren's, Sanders, Yang's and Harris's and now Buttigieg's and Biden's. So I've done six now. I've looked at six candidates' plans and not one of them mentions pumped storage hydro. Well, this is, I mean, this is also just, it's uh, interesting from, you know, those of us who've been covering clean energy for a decade and, and or more and uh, energy storage, you know, became a big part of that, that coverage. Uh, I would say, you know, six, seven years ago, it, it, it became sort of a question that certain people like Bob Wallace on our site and, and others were um, sort of, you know, mapping out saying pumped, pumped hydro is really cheap. There's a lot of opportunity for it still. Like why, why is this, why is this not, why does it not get more attention? Why is it not, uh, have more development. So I'm curious to hear what, what you've found or what you still, what you think about that, but it is a sort of fascinating, weird, um, solution that's tremendously helpful for long-term storage as you highlight, uh, which batteries just are not well equipped for and, um, seasonal storage and, uh, and just, it's, it's, typically has, you know, if you do it right, has a very low cost. So I, I, I'm curious to hear what you've found and, and, you know, if there's any, any light at the end of the pumped hydro tunnel right now, that's. Uh, sure. So, well, one of the other things is it's not temperature sensitive, particularly batteries, as you know, being an, a Tesla owner and, you know, in a couple of, I think you own a couple of Teslas now between the shuttle and your personal Tesla, you, you know, that electric car batteries change characteristics in different temperatures just as solar energy does, by the way. Solar energy goes up and down. This is actually my fourth component of my proposal to Tesla is to build floating solar on top of the reservoirs. Floating, to, floating solar is sexy. That always gets a lot of attention. <laughs> it is it's a cool solution too. For you. I'm sure you, you, you explain why. But uh... Well, it's interesting because you know, one of the things that's been occurring because I've been writing about pumped storage hydro is all the people who have been seeing this and have been in the space for decades are going... Thank God somebody's writing about this and not being wrong. You know, I like three or four different vendors of um, and innovators have approached me from around the world so far and said, "It was really nice reading your article because you were actually accurate." <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I try, but I didn't realize that it was so unusual to talk about this subject and get it wrong so badly. But one of the things that one of the vendors, one of the innovators out of Australia, approached me about was he wants to do. Uh, floating solar on pump storage hydro. And I just did some math. I mean, this is a yesterday conversation. I, I went to an NREL site. I looked up the gigawatt hours per year 
the acres per gigawatt hour per year. And NREL says <clears throat> you can get a, out of every acre, you can get 2.8 gigawatt hours of electricity every year. Who knew? That's a nice number, right? So then I took the 100 hectare sites and I did the math from acres to hectares and then I did the math again and it's looking like 160 gigawatt hours of storage or something like that, um, you know, of generation annually for the way it works. You know, 2 point, you know one gigawatt hour from 2.8 acres in one year. That's the way it works. But anyway, it turns out to be about 160 gigawatt hours of generation you could get out of just these 200 acre reservoirs, which nicely maps onto, you know, you just start thinking about a gigawatt hour reservoir and you want to use it fairly regularly. You want to have some duration to it, but you want to get 80% capacity and stuff like that. And you can, as it goes up and down, you know, you, uh, I, I did some math to say it was only 90% because you need to leave some room around the edges for the water level to go down and the, you know, floating solar not to jam on the edges. Maybe it's 80%. This is rough math. But 160 gigawatt hours of storage over a year isn't that far off a gigawatt hour for a day. You know, so if you think that one to seven hours, one to seven days, it starts to look like a really interesting thing. Now, the, the second thing the um, person out of the Australia pointed out was, um, as you and I know, because we're nerds about energy, uh, solar panels work more efficiently when they're colder. And putting them on floating reservoirs keeps them cooler. You actually get 10% greater efficiency um, in summer temperatures in Australia by floating them instead of having them on the ground because the water sink, the water stays cooler. So that's a really interesting little niblet as well. So you have a fairly nice match between a reservoir size when, when they're aligned, when they're not in shades from the hills and stuff like that. And, and who do we know who sells a lot of solar panels? Elon Musk, Tesla. So we've got this nice emerging intersection point. I love Venn, diagram, Venn diagrams and intersection points. You know, floating solar, big shafts through earth, coal miners, energy storage, and solar panels. And in the middle, there's Elon Musk. It seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, I, I thought, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Elon should love this. I don't know, you know, so so we will keep putting it out there until we see, see it some response. <laughs> well, it. But, it, but you know, it's... Uh, I do I'm, have some insights here. I mean, uh, Elon, I... I uh, you know, love your work. But as I said to my wife, when we were walking along, I, I, I was just using your name as clickbait because I didn't actually expect a response because this is an obvious thing. And people between the Boring Company and Tesla Energy, this is undoubtedly being discussed a million times. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you sometimes, you know, I, some ideas, you know, just... Uh, well, wait for it, wait sitting, for it. Are sitting, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I got into this, I had this idea about Tesla and the boring company and pumped storage hydro when a guy from South Africa called me up, you know, after I, at some point or other, he said, by the way, we've got this innovative power storage solution, uh, gravity power, basically build a drill, you know, they take a 30 meter wide shaft, they put it down 700 meters and they put a huge plug of stone in it. And then they use pumped hydro pumps, regenerative pumps, to use hydraulic energy to raise and lower the stone plug. Um, and this is very useful when you, it creates the equivalent of head because the stone is three times as dense as water. You get the effect of having, you know, 500 meters of head for water reservoirs, but it's just sitting at, you know, from the ground level, you've got a, a hut <laughs> and a big concrete slab and it just kind of sits there. You know, so it's nice for the prairies. But I reached, he reached out to me and said, hey, Mike, you know, I'm, you you're, do some interesting stuff. Maybe you can help us figure out what we need to do to make this work. And so I started, you know, doing what I do, which is thinking about stuff. And I looked at their patents. Oh, yeah, that's right. He reached out to me because of the deep dive I'd done on Joy Scientific. Um, and he wanted to see if I, an external eyes 
felt that they were on the side of the angels or on the side of the joy scientifics of the world. And they're on the side of the angels. They've got an innovative technology which passes my sniff test. It would work. The engineering makes sense. The um, structure makes sense. The technology reuses known things. You just have to build it a scale of a gigawatt hour or bigger um, in order for it to work. And it's competing with other problems related to this space. And they haven't been able to build a, um, a test facility. But I, I will share this one, two things. One thing that's really interesting, they've got a line on a missile silo, an unused missile silo for a test facility. So they're going to turn an ICBM missile silo into a pump storage hydro facility, which I think is great repurposing. <laughs> no response to that, Zach? I thought you'd have a response to that one. Oh, no, I love it. I just, uh, I was just listening, but I, I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, so when I talked to the guy in, a, in South Africa, he was a representative of this North American firm, Gravity Power, and, but he wasn't the originator of the person. He wasn't the person whose you know, name was on the patents. That's Jim Fisk. Um, you know, informally, he was, he was a CTO of innovation or something for LaunchPoint. Clear insight. He did the engineering. He's now uh, chief scientist and CEO of Gravity Power. Anyway, I reached out to, to Jim and said, hey, Jim, by the way, I was talking to your guy in South Africa. And, um, you know, I read the patents. I did all the stuff. And it seems like you've got a really sensible thing. What about approaching Elon Musk and using the boring company to drill the shafts? And he said, well, we did. <laughs> so... Jim Fisk had already talked to Elon Musk or representatives of the Boring Company, at least. And they'd said, basically, there are two or three things. One is the shaft diameter is too small because for his particular solution, they don't need 8 to 10 meter shafts. They need 30 meter shafts. And you need like 80 holes with a boring machine to get that. It just doesn't make sense. There's better known techniques for drilling large holes in the ground. You don't use the boring machine or tunnel boring machines for something of that diameter. But he talked to Elon about it anyway, because there's other stuff and there's other shafts. Um, and Elon said, apparently, according to Jim, that you know he didn't think his shareholders and board would like it if he started building alternatives to grid batteries. Um, that, this is a, somewhat apocryphal. Um, you know, I, I, this is a, an email exchange with Jim Fisk, but. My point, my larger point is that people have talked to Elon Musk about the boring company and pump storage hydro already. So, so I may so it's be, on his radar and he's, uh, he's either ruminating on it or he's written it off, uh, for, for one reason or another. Uh, I mean, like you said earlier, you know, it's, it's very much a complimentary, uh, solution. So it's, I don't really see, I mean, maybe I'm not sure about that, that statement, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, obviously the guy is also extremely busy and he has to pick and choose, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's also something like you sometimes see he's, he's thought about something or considered something and comes back to it a, a decade later. And then there's also JB Strubble, of course, we don't really know what he's doing, but he, he, he was, he was the energy storage guy. I mean, there they have many, but uh, he was the head, head CTO of Tesla until recently. And he's a, he's a investor in an ice storage company, ice, yeah. um, ice energy storage company. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of curiosity about what he's actually doing next. I don't think anyone really thinks he's like retiring. Um, I think <laughs> I think people expect he's he's working on something. Yeah. So the you know I've been going you know a bit deeper on battery technology as well, right? I mean, obviously we you know you and I are fairly familiar with lithium-ion chemistry from the outside, not people who design the batteries. Although I have to admit, I used to paraglide with a German PhD who did actually design lithium ion batteries and embed microsensors in them. Um, and she was fascinating to talk to. A lot of people are putting their, their hopes on flow batteries for grid storage at higher scales. Um, and, and we've been, and we, we've been writing about those hopes for approximately uh, 10 years as well. I mean, it's, it's sort of like this, uh, th there's some, some progress, but it's, it's always seems like, um, it doesn't seem like, I don't know. It seems like we have a lot of the same stories today that we had eight years ago about the topic? Well, I, part of it is I, I have more insight now because I spent three hours last week with three PhDs who in a battery start, a flow battery startup in British Columbia, um, 
more about that in the future, but there's some stuff, you know, the, the insights they provided me included that, you know, most of the flow battery people need, you need, you need polymer um, for the um, membrane. And that's an expensive component. But the other thing is that most of the people in this space are looking for metal catalysts and they're frequently uh, precious metal catalysts. So they're very expensive and catalysts degrade. That's one of the characteristics of them. So you end up having, you know, platinum that you have to replace quite regularly. And that's not only maintenance, which you don't have to have, which, you know, if you're building a storage thing, you just want it to sit there. Um, you just want to, you know, pump energy and get electricity out and don't think about it is what you really want. You don't want to have to maintain it. You don't want to have to open it up. You don't want to have to, you know, you want to have to top up chemicals once a year, not every week. And you don't want to have to disassemble it to replace the catalysts every week to four weeks because they're expensive and because that's a lot of maintenance. So these combination of things are inhibitors to flow batteries. And I, I will say that the you know, startup I'm, I'm dealing with has overcome, um, mostly through technical innovation on their side and insights on their side, some of those technical innovation limitations. And um, my three hours with them last week has uh, helped them overcome a different risk and limitation uh, through a business perspective piece, you know, doing what I do for clients and, you know, companies I work with, which is to help them understand what they've actually got and where the best fit for it is and where their actual opportunities are for it that they weren't seeing themselves because they're too close to it. So well, that, that, that definitely has to be a topic of another episode when they're, uh, when they're further along and ready to, yeah. ready to chat. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, in, in quite that case, interesting. Um, right now it looks like I'll probably be taking a board position in a small equity uh, position um, in that company. It's, interesting. You know, interesting. It's one of the things I do, right? It's one of <laughs> very I, interesting. <laughs> it's one of the things I do is, you know, where, where, Startups are actually interesting. I don't sell my body through the night as a consultant, um, but I actually take an equity position so that um, you know I can assist them and grow my net worth that way. Um, so, anybody listening who you know has got something interesting, give me a call. Um, yeah, just make so, sure you just make sure you bury your pitch at the one hour mark. It's all <laughs> <laughs> no. It's I think I think anyone who you know it's, it's a they should be listening still anyway. Let me close um, off with yeah, sure. why the barriers. So yesterday I spent two hours on the phone with an innovator in this space, an innovator that Tesla has written, or the clean technica undoubtedly wrote about in the past. I know I have. He's the guy who invented the lattice work wind turbine uh, frame fabric wrapped that GE ended up buying. Yes, yes. We, we wrote about that quite a bit. That's interesting. So now he just won a DOE competition for pumped storage hydro innovation um, with a proposal for a faster tunnel boring machine. And there are three or four insights to gain. A, in pumped storage hydro globally, everybody defaults to tunnel boring machines. Two, for longer tunnels, tunnel boring machines frequently end up getting entombed in mountains and become dead scrap that nobody comes out and statistics only ever come out of the two companies that build them. So nobody knows how many there are, but there are a lot more than you think. Um, third, he, there's some interesting technology like, um, that's been emerging over the past decade out of mining called oscillating disc technology, which carves through hard rock like butter. Um, you know, I'll be writing about this in the next week or two just to kind of articulate this and, you know, uh, talking about Tracy Livingston, the serial innovator in energy. Um, he's proposing, um, he's worked with them to create a continuous tunnel boring machine with the oscillating disk stuff, uh, automatic bolting for rock face stabilization, automatic shot critting, and automated narrow mining carts, which can pass two side by side, one going one way. Um, which are standard tech to DOE, and he's going to be developing that with Argonne Labs and others over the next year. But he's proposing that as the mechanism to build a 13-kilometer tunnel in New Mexico. So he's proposing pump storage hydro in New Mexico. He's talked to the governor uh, there. Uh, the challenge, and this is where the challenge comes in, um, A, long tunnels, um, B, there are still some complaints. There's you know, some people who are complaining because a tunnel is going underneath a national park, like 100 to 300 meters underground, there's going to be a tube, and they're upset about that. 
it is what it is. The thing that he brought to my attention for the United States, which is different than Australia, because I talked regulatory pathways in Australia as well, is that regulatory approvals, even under the new FAST process that FERC brought in, still require three separate federal agencies to sign off. There's FERC itself for energy. Um, there is the Bureau of Reclamation, which owns all the hydro dams in the United States. They're the one that has the power marketing authorities that Bernie Sanders wants to use to build all the wind and solar, just as the green, you know, the New Deal in the 50s and 40s built all the dams, which are still owned by the federal government and the Department of Energy. But the Bureau of Reclamation, another federal department, has to approve the siting and stuff. And the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers is responsible for all dam safety. So that you have to actually get their approval as well. So that's three federal agencies already before any state regulatory concerns. So the fast process, the slow process for, and, and this all comes, this all emerged out of on-river major hydro dams from the 50s. There's this huge bureaucratic legacy, regulatory le legacy. You know, the, the nuclear folks complain about regulatory burden. They ain't got nothing on pump storage hydro. These two ponds that are smaller than New York Central Park, smaller than uh, Golden Gate Park, with you know, like a five-kilometer tunnel through hard rock, require the same amount of regulatory approval as the Hoover Dam or the Oroville Dam. It's nutty degrees of stuff that is not fit for purpose. And FERC recognizes that. They put a streamlined process in. But the streamlined process, instead of taking seven years and $40 million, uh, only takes four years and $15 million. That's just for approval. And then you've got to construct it. And constructing long tunnels through solid rock takes, you know, a couple of years. So you could, the you problem call, is... You could call that a barrier to success. <laughs> that's a barrier to success. And they're, they're cognizant of that, but they haven't solved it fully yet. They solved it once, and the first iteration is still really onerous. And New Mexico is doing five-year planning cycles. So they're going to, even though their target is 100% um, carbon neutral by 2040, uh, they're going to probably end up building a gas plant instead. Because even though they could put in pump storage hydro that met all of their requirements and help them decarbonize, the regulatory cycle and the construction cycle is outside of their planning horizon. So they're going to default to something else. He's trying to overcome that, of course, but yeah. you know, all the so pump storage hydro people become long-term governmental lobbyists yeah. to convince and educate people who have no clue, and they're dealing with this regulatory burden, and they're dealing with the timeline burden, you know, all of which need to collapse. Australia, by comparison, has done a really good job of streamlining their permitting of pump storage hydro, which is why this big study came out of um, Australia, because they're way ahead of the world on this technology. So, you know, you know my motto, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. The future of pump storage hydro is Australia. Even though it's something, so, the first one was built so, in 1890, the future is Australia. So you've got, you've got that as a, as a kind of summary. Do you have any, any more of a kind of uh, uh, elevator summary of, of uh, conclusion of, of the idea, uh, where, you know, what its potential is? Sure. And who, uh, you know, who could wrapping create? it up, uh, if Elon Musk took the the energy Tesla Energy and the Boring Company um, and put them together around pump storage hydro, he could have a highly complementary product. He could employ a bunch of out of work coal workers. He could put a lot of solar on the reservoirs, and he could solve the storage problem at great profit for the entire United States and the world with technology and complementary business units he has in hand today. And it would be useful on Mars. Not the coal worker part, but otherwise. That sounds pretty compelling. <laughs> I like sounds it. Great. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. We have to, uh, we were going to talk about Mr. Buttigieg, but we will have to return for another episode soon uh, uh, for that. But uh, thank Mike. When you, have a, when, you have a, when you have a place to plug in your laptop. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, my my I need a pumped hydro battery. <laughs> no, we uh but it's really it was fascinating. I mean, I was just uh, sitting and learning and listening, so it's a really interesting topic and um a lot of little interesting tidbits and tidbits and and side side notes that are, I think, you know, worth li- even listening twice to. Uh so thank you for this and uh thank you for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Uh listeners, thank you for for enjoying the show and check in next time to get your electric fix. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a We're looking note. for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk. <laughs>